0: Our text is uh, chapter 80 of Psalms. To the chief musician said to the lilies a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it and the wild beasts of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you yourself made strong for yourself. It is, burnished, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your right hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, would you pour out your spirit on us that we might receive this word with true gospel-hungry faith. Transform us by the message that we might sing your praises all our days. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, and amen. amen. The most famous blessing of the Old Testament is probably the Aaronic blessing uh, or also people call it the priestly blessing. It's in Numbers chapter 6. It goes like this. I'm at verse 22 in number 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his, his sons saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So this is the blessing that uh, for those that are going to have God's name upon them, you probably recognize it because it regularly cycles through in the, um, the final blessing, the benediction that you get at the end of the church service. But it was the most prominent blessing in the Old Testament. And according to this blessing, it says that God will lift up his face upon you. You've got the word face in there twice. Once as face and once translated as countenance. But that's just another fancy way of saying face. It's the same word in the Hebrew. But it's it's God's face will be upon you. And he he repeats it a couple times there. His face is on you. And not only that, but God's face is on you and God's face will shine on you. That There will be this shining that will come from God's face that will be on you. And so even though God said his face could not be seen, uh, if you remember, God told Moses, Exodus 32, you or sorry, Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So you can't see God's face. And yet here we're told that his face will brilliantly appear to his people. There's this tension there. There's this mystery. You can't see God's face. And yet God's face is going to be on you. And it's going to brilliantly shine upon you. Uh, we know, uh, if you keep reading in the book of Exodus, actually, if you just go to the next chapter, because that was Exodus 33, that he's told you can't see God's face. But in Exodus 34, Moses receives the law from the Lord on, written on the two tablets. And he walks down Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone. And when he shows up in the camp, having come down from Mount Sinai and meeting with God, we're told that Moses' own face had begun to shine. And a light came from the skin of his face because he had been meeting with God, uh, Exodus thirty-four verse thirty. So when Aaron and all the children saw uh, all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Uh, so and, and we're told actually if you keep going on in the story that Moses actually started wearing a veil when he would come down to the people he would put a veil over his face because the light that was shining from his face from his skin was so overpowering and terrifying that it would make the people of israel scared to meet with moses and and so moses is meeting with god and in that meeting the 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 shining the brilliancy the holiness of god actually had an effect on moses own face such that his own face uh began to shine So so you have this blessing in Numbers that God will cause his face to shine on you and Moses goes to meet with God and comes back and his own face is starting to shine. And and you'll see that as as you read the Bible, um, as you're going through the Old Testament, you'll see this idea of like encountering God and seeing his face becomes this this thing that's that's constantly being brought up. Um, You think of Jacob he he wrestles with the angel of the Lord but after that um in Genesis 32 he names the place where he wrestled with the angel of the Lord he names it Penuel which means the face of God and he says I'm naming it that because I saw God face to face that angel of the Lord was somehow this encounter with the face of of the Lord um you you have both Moses and Elijah are given a glimpse of God's glory but we're told that they came close, but they didn't get to actually see God's face. They were close, but, but not quite there. So this idea of encountering the face of God, it's, it's throughout the Bible. And I think that that makes it really interesting that the blessing in, uh, in the, the priestly blessing here, that priestly uh, prayer that Aaron gives, is that God would cause his face to shine on you. That's what you're seeking, is God's face on you and the shining, the brilliancy of God's face on you. And, and, and if you keep reading on into your New Testament, you find that this promise continues on in the New Testament. There, there is still this promise of a vision or a glimpse of God's face, promised to his people. Uh, in the Beatitudes, Jesus, uh, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what you're aiming for. You're moving forward towards being able to see God. And that's this Real blessedness when you get to actually see God. But we are we're also told that this blessing is describing a promise that is a future promise. It's something that's still to come, something we don't fully receive until we get to heaven. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians thirteen. Now we see in a in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So we see something now, but we're moving towards, when we get into the resurrection, a moment where we see face to face. John says this at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, 4, last chapter of your Bible. Um, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. It's taking us all the way back to that blessing that Aaron gives us. That those that have God's name on him get to see his face. And that in that resurrection, in that resurrected state, we will actually be able to see God face to face. So there's a future promise that we will see God's face in heaven. This is, this is called the beatific vision. So theologians will refer to this as the beatific vision. Beatific just means like um, the most blessed, the full of blessing. It's the vision, it's the sight that is the the greatest experience of blessing that you can imagine. I think that's why Jesus has in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's what real blessing looks like is to be able to actually behold God. And and if you think about that for a moment, then that really means that that beatific vision, that desire, that, that moment of being able to see God is is really the goal of every Christian. I mean, that's that's what... Your Christian faith is going to culminate in is that moment when you actually get to come before God and see Him. Um, so that's what we're all headed towards, seeing God face to face. And yet, it's a future promise that we're supposed to start searching for in this life. Okay, it's a future promise. It's what you're aiming for, but you're supposed to start searching for it in this life. Um, Colossians, uh, Colossians three. Kind of hints at this—that this this weird sense of like you've got something future, but you're supposed to be looking for it now. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, so so you're supposed to be you're supposed to be knowing that that's where you're headed, and so your your mind, your heart, your eyes are are looking towards. Christ seated at the right hand of the father and you don't see him now or as Paul says you see as a mirror dimly but you're going to see face to face you're going to see this someday where you actually behold him I think that's that's why we're constantly exhorted as you read through scripture to seek God's face seek God's face look to him look to him Um, you see that throughout the psalms this constant idea of like lifting up your eyes looking towards God seeking God um, and and that it's all throughout Scripture, and then it kind of comes into like our like our Christianese, you know, the the, the weird language that we speak as Christians that are kind of filled uh, filled with all of these kind of these little slogans and mottos that we know about and we reference, and and it informs how we think and we and we and we speak to each other in this way where we're dropping little phrases all the time from Scripture, and so. So because it's throughout Scripture, we're always talking to one another about, oh, well, look to Christ. You know, look to God. You need to, you need to look to God. But the thing is, when we're describing seeking God's face, we're describing something that is very important. I'm telling you that it's like the culmination of your faith. It's the thing you're supposed to be aiming towards. But at the same time that it's very important, it's also very mystical and very hard to understand. Like, what does that even mean? Look to Christ. Like, what, what, what does that actually, practically mean for you? It sounds like it could be very profound, very, uh, very meaningful, very weighty, but we frequently say it without understanding it, so that it can come, it can become sort of like a hollow platitude. This, this thing that is like, you, you, it's, it's probably full of meaning, but you can't understand what it even means. And you're not sure that it actually really helps to tell somebody, look to Christ. Just look to Jesus. Um, you, you tell somebody, look to God, look to Christ, keep your eyes on Jesus. Um, you know, let's say I, I tell you, I just found out I have cancer. I didn't. But let, let's say I, I tell you, I, I just found out I have cancer. And, and you say, well, that's hard. Look to Christ. Make sure you look to Christ. Okay, well, how do, how, do I, how do I take that and apply it to this difficulty? I'm going through a terrible divorce. Well, keep seeking God's face. You know, look, look for God's face in that. I'm completely enslaved to a sin that I can't get the victory over. Well, have you tried looking to God? Would you just maybe, maybe look to God in the midst of that trial? The thing is, that answer, it contains the truth. Like, as you're hearing that, you're thinking, yeah, that probably would be a good thing if I could do that. It sounds like it contains the truth, but if you don't know how to unpack the truth, um, then it's not very helpful. You know, it's like you've got this suitcase that has the thing you need in it, but you can't get the zipper open. And, and, and people will give you these platitudes of look to God, look to Christ, and you think, okay, that probably is true, but how, how do I do that? Um, specifically, I mean, how do you look to God when, A, he's in heaven, B, he's invisible, um, how, how do you look to that? Something that you can't see. You're 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 stating actually something that if that sounds like a logical contradiction. I want you to see the invisible thing, right? I, I want you to look at the thing that can't be seen. Even more, how do you look to God when you can't see Him, but your troubles and your sins are very present and very visible, right? Because people are telling you, look to Christ in the midst of this trial. God, and that God you can't see, but you know what? Your trial, you can see, right? Or your trial is right in front of you and it's very visible, right? You can touch it, you can see it, you know it. So, how do you, in the midst of this thing that you can see, look towards a thing that you can't see? For instance, think of this the sin of lust is driven by the visible right the images are all around you it's it's if anything it's the thing that is that you see it's the it's the visible thing how do you in the midst of dealing with that look towards the thing that you can't see or maybe maybe you wrestle with anger bitterness resentment maybe maybe you have certain relationships friendships that are very like difficult and hard to work through and every time you encounter that person you walk away with a new resentment, right? So to the point where like just the sound of their voice, the, the, the thought of that person just kind of throws you into sin because they drive you nuts. And, and here's the thing. Odds are, like as I'm describing that person, you're thinking you know who I'm talking about. My guess is over the next week, you're probably scheduled to celebrate the holidays with that person, <laughs> Right? They're going to be in front of you. You're going to be eating with them. You're going to have to laugh at their jokes or try to pretend to laugh at their jokes. You're going you're gonna to be encountering them really, physically. They're going to be right in front of you. How, do you. how do you look to Christ when you can't see him and this, this person you can see? Or maybe, maybe it's the, the hopelessness, the despair, the loneliness, the depression that gets you. And you're in the midst of the holiday season that seems to just exasperate that, right? Where, where everybody is kind of broadcasting their joy and rubbing it in, and it makes it that much harder for you to endure where you are. And every Christmas you know, carol that is sung, every um, Christmas cookie that is served up, every party that you walk past and hear people laughing, it all rubs it in that much more. And it's all very tangible. It's right there and present to all of your senses. And somebody is saying, okay, but I want you to not look, look at that, but look at this thing that you can't see. So you have this problem um, that we will see um, God face to face. We have this promise that we will see God face to face. We have the constant exhortations to be looking to God, especially in the face of very visible trials. But we have the reality that we can't, physically see God right now, even though our trials are very visible before us. Uh, so you see what you can see, what you aren't supposed to look at. You can't see what you are supposed to look at, all right? And, that, and that's, the, that's the, the interesting dilemma that you as a saint have right in front of you. And I think Psalm 80 actually is addressing uh, or prophesying uh, the the answer to this dilemma that we have. all right if, if you look at psalm eighty I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but just briefly, um, Asaph is describing the trials of Israel. in verse four, God is angry with them. Uh, verse five, God has uh, afflicted them. Verse six, Israel's enemies have begun to laugh at them. They're overthrowing Israel. they're driving it back and the and the enemies are starting to laugh at Israel. He says in verses eight and nine that look, Lord, you, you brought us out of Egypt as this, this um, tender little vine. You brought us out of Egypt, and you planted us in the promised land. You set us up to grow and to thrive. But then it seems like we've been abandoned, and now, verses 12 and 13, we're at the mercy of our enemies. So he's describing this very difficult situation that Israel is in. But throughout the description of Israel's problems, Asaph returns to this... Um, this uh, Um, constant refrain. You see it it, the first time it appears in verse 3. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So he's, he's describing all of his problems, but as he's in the midst of the problems, each time he's starting to talk about how bad it is, all of a sudden this refrain comes in. This desire, God, restore us, cause your face to shine. Make your face show up, make your face shine, as it did as throughout the Old Testament, as you promised that it will cause your face to shine. And when that happens, we will be saved. And that restore us, you might just as easily translate that as um, bring us to repentance. Bring us to the point where we've repented of our sins and we are right before you. That when he causes his face to shine, that's what we'll have and we will have um, salvation. We will be saved. He says this in verse 3, and he kind of goes back to their problems again. And then all of a sudden, verse 7, he, he, he hits the refrain again. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Then he starts to get overwhelmed by the problems again and talk about his problems. And then again, uh, we see it one more time in verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So, God is, has seemingly cast them off, but he knows that there's this promise of God's face shining and that when God's face shines, we will be saved. Um, so throughout all of God's troubles, if God will shine his face upon us and bring us to repentance, then we will have salvation. And the repeated, the repeated refrain culminates, I think, in the last couple of verses. Just look at verses 17 through 19. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. So this shining will happen when the hand of God is on the man of his right hand. When, when God's hand is on the man of his right hand, who he calls here the Son of Man. His name will be the Son of Man. And when the Son of Man on God's right hand appears, then, then he, will be made, and he will be made strong to save by the power of God himself, we're told here. And he will cause the face of God to shine on his people. And he will bring about the salvation of God's people. So this man is the one who will cause God's face to shine. This thing that Moses was looking forward to will happen when this man shows up and and causes God's face to shine. Now, as you know, Christmas celebrates the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. It's probably one of his premier titles as you read through the Gospels. We keep referring to him as He's the Son of Man, the Son of Man that was prophesied here in Daniel and elsewhere. The Son of Man is, has been prophesied, and so that's the title that Jesus Christ takes to himself. He is the Son of Man, he is the fulfillment of this promise. And, and Christmas celebrates the coming of the Son of Man who ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is the Son of Man at God's right hand, he is the fulfillment of this passage, which means he is the one who's going to cause God's face to shine. Uh, think of Matthew 17.2. I alluded to this last week in the sermon. I was talking about the different places where, um, where you see um, Christ's sonship declared. Well, one of them is in the transfiguration, uh, Matthew 17.2, where there's this moment where Jesus, um, who the disciples know as this man, suddenly God kind of peels things back for a moment and shows them who Jesus really is when he's on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah. I think it's interesting, the other two guys that got to have an experience of coming as close to face-to-face with God as you can. And they're sitting there when uh, Jesus' three disciples are are with him, and God kind of peels it back for a moment, and they see who Jesus really is, the Son of God, and they're overwhelmed by it. They're overwhelmed by the glory of seeing it. But how is it described? Matthew 17, 2. Um, His face shone like the sun. Okay, they were there to see... Christ's face actually begin to shine, as Moses had when he was on Mount Sinai. So Christ is the one who comes and reveals God's face to us. And he is the one who's who shines on us the way the Old Testament prophesied. But again, let me take you back to the problem. Because the problem is, I don't want to um, act like, OK, so again, the answer is Jesus. So look to Jesus. Now we're all settled. Because I don't think that that quite gets us there, does it? Um, Go back to the problem, because the thing is, is Jesus, who I'm saying reveals God's face to you, is now in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, because he's the one at God's right hand. So it's great that Jesus came to this earth, and it's great that his disciples got to look at his face and have God revealed to them through knowing Jesus. But what good does that do for you, right? So, so, Peter, James, and John got to actually see Jesus' face shining. They had his face shine upon them. But then Jesus went up to heaven. So so what does that leave you with? How do you have this fulfilled for you? Um, They got to see him, but what good does that do for us? He's in heaven, we're on earth. He's in heaven with the Father, but we are on earth still with all of your very visible problems. Well, I think Paul unpacks this a little bit more for us in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, um, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul takes this idea of the shining face of God and helps explain it a little bit more. In chapter 3, he, he, he recounts the story of how Moses' face would shine when he talked with God, and how Moses would cover it with this veil when he would come back down. So he's retelling that story in, in chapter 3. Um, so when he returns to the people, he covers it with this veil. But look at, I'm, I'm in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, I'm starting at verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord so the old testament was a veiled glory as god was being revealed in the old testament it was a veiled glory that's why when moses came down there was a veil on his face it's why the holy of holies had a veil before it there was there was a veil over the glory of god in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, with Jesus having come, that veil is taken away. That veil is removed, and we begin to see God more clearly. Now, Paul is speaking, you need to remember for a moment, to the Christians that are in Corinth, okay? And I think it's really interesting that he's speaking to people who were converted by hearing the preaching of the gospel, and he is telling them that they see God's glory more than Moses did. These are not the disciples who were on the mountain with Jesus. These are not disciples who ever even got to physically meet Jesus. These are a mix of Jews and Gentiles, most of whom I believe never encountered Jesus, but they heard the gospel preached, and Paul is telling them that they have experienced the, the shining of Jesus' face any more vivid and profound way than Moses himself did that Moses had a veil there was something that was covering things up then but you he says to the people who've heard the gospel are seeing something more um, profound more brilliant you're beholding God with an unveiled face he's saying that they have a more profound vision of Christ than Moses did how how can this be then how can it be that they, that they have a more profound vision? And, and I think Paul would say you are in the same place, that you've actually had a more profound encounter with Christ and beheld the glory of God in a more vivid way than Moses himself has. How can that be the case? Well, look at chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind is the God of this age, who um, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Okay, what does he say is the light here? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What is doing the shining? In this, in this verse. It's the gospel, which is the, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel itself is what does the shining, right? That's the thing that illuminates. That's the thing that, that turns the lights on, that makes the world bright with light. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that does the shining. Receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, then, Causes the light of the glory of God to shine in your heart with a more profound and brilliant light than that which Moses himself received. The simple reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the light of God that has begun to shine in your heart and to reveal the face of God in your heart. Just understanding the gospel is what turn, turns the lights on. Look at verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, The face of Jesus Christ is lighting your heart when you receive that gospel by faith. Let me just read that verse one more time. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So just as God in Genesis 1 said, let there be light, and the world was full of light, all right, and the world just lit up with brilliant light, that same God, when he spoke in your heart and you received Christ by faith, turned the light on in your heart. And it's a brilliant light that lights up the whole world. It's an overwhelming light that comes simply with the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel is what shines brightly. So then what do we mean when we say, look to Christ, look to Christ, in that problem, look to Christ? We simply mean to go back and walk through the basic truths of the gospel. It's just simply go back and walk through the basic, um, your basic understanding of what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God, your Father, has a perfect and unconditional love for you. Remember last week describing just that love of the Father. That in Christ, that love is yours. He has a perfect and unconditional love for you. That he sent his perfect son as a sacrifice for you. His perfect son, he sent to come and die on the cross for you. That you've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That you, in in faith, when you put your faith in Christ, are united with him. And that you, when he died on the cross, you were with him. And that when he went down in the ground, you went with him. And on the third day, when he rose again from the dead, you triumphed and rose again with him. And that when he was seated at the right hand of the Father, you went with him and you sit with him now. That those things are yours because you're united with him by faith. That your sin, though deserving eternal condemnation, has been fully atoned for. Has been completely wiped away, it's completely wiped clean. That you have eternal life promised to you, and that you can look forward to that overwhelmingly brilliant beatific vision. That full blessedness of beholding God is yours and is promised to you, living for eternity in the perfect love of the Father. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that message, received by faith, sends out a brilliant light in your heart that changes and transforms both you and the world around you. And it's weird how we can, we can, um, we can forget how to work the zipper and, un- and open up that suitcase. But all of a sudden, it's just walking through the basic truths of the gospel, and it all comes open and suddenly you see how you're going to deal with this person who's a pain, how you're going to deal with this sin that seems to get the victory, how you're going to deal with this depression and this kind of hopelessness that you feel. You walk through those truths, and and they kind of all just sort of deflate and fall to the ground when you actually are looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel preached to you. And having received this message by faith, that light shines in your heart. Paul says, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, right? You are seeing it now, albeit dimly, but it is the beginning of the shine that you will walk into when you inherit eternal life. So dim though it may be, it's still brighter than what Moses saw. And that's the amazing thing is that, yes, this is dim, but it's still far more brilliant than what Moses himself saw. But there's, there's one more part uh, and one more piece to this that I just think is just really interesting. And that is that you can't behold the shining of God's face. You can't behold that shining of God's glory without being transformed by it, right? Uh, so, so Moses goes and he stands before God's fi- shining face. And when he comes down from that mountain, Moses' face is just brilliantly shining. You can't stand in front of that glory without it having a transformative effect on you. Moses' face shone after standing before God and Paul says that something similar is happening to you. Okay? Look at look at I'm go back to um 2 Corinthians 3 there it is. Uh, verse 8 18. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you, like Moses, standing before the shining glory of God, are transformed by that shining glory. And like Moses, you too begin to shine. All right, we are transformed. As you come to faith in Christ, your life is changed. You become a new person. And that change in your life is, in a more, is a more brilliant shining than the light that shone from Moses' face, right? The light that is coming off of you is more powerful than what came off of Moses' skin. Um, look, look again at uh, chapter 4, I mean, again, 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, God is revealed in the gospel to our heart, and that light is in your heart. But now look at how he describes that light in the next verse. But we have this treasure, this, this light that is shining, this gospel-inspired light that is shining inside of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God, uh, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Okay, I think that this is a really interesting image. You're like this brilliant flaming torch, this fire that is, that is the light of God, the glory of God that he has lit inside of you. And he says it's held inside like an earthen vessel or a clay pot maybe, right? It's, you're like a torch with a clay pot over the top of it. Where else in scripture do you have that image of, of the burning fire torch with a clay pot over the top of it? I can't help but think of Gideon's army, right? where God sends Gideon with his 300 men, and, he, and he, he perfectly constructs all the settings so that there is no way this victory is coming from Gideon or from the power of the soldiers or anything like that. It is purely God's glory that is accomplishing the victory that Gideon is about to happen. And as Paul says here, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Okay, we're, we're, we're showing that this is all God and not us. And the pot that was over Gideon's uh, torch, that's your body, right? That's your life. That's your mortality. That's your sin. That's all of your failings that you bring to this. And there's this light, this torch that is shining in it. And the glory of it is that eventually, you know, when, when God gives the signal, the pot breaks, Right? And, and all that falls off, and what you have is the torch. And what does that torch do? But it announces God's brilliant victory. It announces the glory of God and his victory over all of those armies. So you carry the light of the gospel about in your heart, like one of Gideon's earthen pots, carrying the torch inside that announces the victory of Christ's army. Now, that is the message that Christmas announces. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. That is Christmas, is that light shining, showing up on earth and lighting this spark that is slowly filling the whole earth. That is Christmas. And that's why I think Christmas should be celebrated with lights everywhere. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect and obedient life, to die in our place as an unblemished sacrifice. We thank you for his victory over death and his ascension to your right hand. And we thank you for pouring your Spirit into our hearts that we might receive this message by faith. Father, we ask that you would kindle this flame of faith in our hearts to burn brightly, and we especially pray that we would be bold in shining this light throughout our town. We would have all our town walk in the light of your perfect love. And so we pray now as your
1: son taught us to pray, saying, So this table is God's continual affirmation to us that creation is good and that it shall remain forever. He made it, and he likes it, and he aims to keep it. On the sixth day of its first week, he looked out over all that he had made, at the stars, the sun, the lizards, and fish, and cattle, and grass, and flowers. And at our first parents, he looked out over it all. And behold, it was very good. In fact, he liked it so much that he decided he would keep it even after sin had entered in, even after death and decay and corruption began began to distort its original image. He didn't scrap the whole project. He didn't start over, he preserved what he had made and set a plan that would redeem it. He would clean it up and restore it back to complete newness. And on Christmas morning, this divine commitment to our world's redemption could at last be seen and felt and heard. Before Christmas, God had promised that he would restore all things, but now that promise had taken on flesh. On Christmas morning, God had himself, in some inexplicable way, become part of creation. The God-man was born, our Lord Jesus Christ. He moved onto our street, he became our neighbor, he ate our food, he drank our water, he made this world his home. He spoke and thought and felt and wept and laughed and he looked over all that he had made through the same kinds of eyes that we have. And he rejoiced knowing that he would, through his death, make every inch of this place clean and new again. On the night before the hardest part of this work would be completed, Jesus looked around at the faces of his disciples, even as I look around at your faces, and he held up bread. He held up wine. This is my body, he said, and this is my blood. And when he said this, he expressed what cannot be explained. God in Christ had become bound up with His creation, ensuring that it would continue forever before Him. When we eat of this meal, then we do not we do not celebrate some Platonic, ethereal redemption of the soul, where we all feel better, but there's nothing to touch, or see, or taste. No, but at this table we celebrate the full-orbed, eternal redemption of all things, down to the very bread that we're eating and the wine that will drink. It has all been taken up into God through Christ and as sure as Christ our Lord lives so also shall this world. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this let his light be
0: your light let your light be the light of the world. The Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and amen.